Welcome to the second Viva Cost podcast. I am one of your hosts, Graham Spence, and today I am joined by Alison Graham. Alison, are you there? I am. I'm very well. How are you? I'm very, I'm very, very good. Now I'm only back. I've only been back a day, so I was, I was away in Paris for the um, the start of this week. So I've, I've just been trying to catch up with everything that's been happening. There's been a lot happening in Scottish politics this week, hasn't there? There has. It's been quite a, an exciting kind of weekend. There's a lot of events going on, which I'm sure we can get into the, some detail of in our podcast tonight. <laughs> it's, a, it's a lot. I mean, I, I, first of all, I was um, rather amusingly in Disneyland Paris, of all places, and I was standing in a queue and it <laughs> came up breaking news on my phone that Ian Blackford had um, decided to resign, which I, I presume, I don't think he's actually decided to resign. It sounds more like he's been pushed from what I've been reading. Can you shed any light on that? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of kind of conflicting messaging going out at the moment, but certainly he seemed very resigned resigned to staying, and suddenly he's kind of resigned or he's no, not restanding. So it's the SNP group in Westminster's AGM this week. So he's not putting his hat in the ring. So that would suggest strongly, and certainly some of the you know things that have happened just before that, um, like the indication Stephen Flynn was going to stand against, um, and he now and then he kind of retracted it, and now he's kind of standing, and now we've got another candidate, Alison Thulis, all suggests that there's there's definitely a few movers and shakers and things going on down there at the moment. So the, it should be a very interesting week to see how that actually plays out. I mean, it so, seems yeah, to be on the that's, back that's of, what's uh, been going on there. It, it seems to be on the back of they just didn't make any progress whatsoever. I mean, under Ian Blackford, what what have we seen? I mean, what what are the achievements? I struggle to actually list them. They, they walked out once. Did they do anything else? Yeah. Well, I think we talked before about the Supreme Court decision and how, you know, if you put the legal, you know, question and answer aside, the catalyst of the event politically, and I think it has actually made people kind of step up and say, well, what now? And that that actually put a lot of pressure on, particularly um, because there's been discussion of the the Plan B, if you like, being a a Westminster plebiscite. So that's something that the pressure's then on the Westminster MPs to actually win. Um, and that's when people start looking and say, well, what have you done so far? You know, what are the likelihood of, you, of success compared to, you know, your, your record? Because it's always tough when you're in power because you've then got to prove what you've done. You're not, you know, it's not just all promises of what could be, but it's actually, you know, you, there's more pressure on scrutiny on your record. Um, so I think a lot of the MPs uh, will be looking at that at the moment and say, how does this actually position them? Is there is there a reason that things have have not progressed and have not had the kind of traction um, that many people hoped, particularly in the 2015 surge of SNP MPs in Westminster, the 56? I think there was high expectations of what they could do, and there's a lot of um, rhetoric, you know, from from Winnie Ewing's famous, you know, we're here to settle up, not settle down, um, and I think that is now kind of coming back to bite them a wee bit. So it's a bit like a, like team tactics, um, you know, in a, in a football game or something. You start to look at the management and think, are you actually picking the right side? Have you got the right players in the right position? Um, so there's been definitely a lot of scrutiny. Obviously, you can't dis- discount the you know the situation with Patrick Grady as well. There was a lot of negative media on yeah. uh, Ian Blackford himself. There. 
there and I don't think he covered himself in glory and some of the, the media he did after that as well. He has been in the media himself trying to counter some of the things there's been, there's clearly um, I mean I hate to say it but it sort of reminds me of some of the stuff that's going on in the Tory party you know that, you know, the people coming out on sides, it's like the whole Nadine Doris like cheering for Boris kind of thing um, and you know getting it like really really wrong, not reading, reading the room um, and there's a, there's been a lot of very typical kind of t- tweeting going on with some of the elected members and others within the party like supporting you know Ian and then you know supporting other other candidates um, now that he's actually kind of stepped down. So you're starting to see that, you know, this very, very tightly controlled party is now starting to look as if it's got a bit more life about it, to be honest, I think, democratically. I don't see it as a bad thing if there's um, people, you know, jostling there for position, as long as they're doing it in a constructive way and setting something forward that, okay, they are actually genuinely retrospectively taking account of what worked and what didn't work and how things can change. Because I think, you know, if there is, as you said, you know, lack of progress, there needs to be real scrutiny. Is what, what is the blockage? What's What's stopping them from, from having that um, that progress? So it's very interesting what's going on at the moment. Um, and I think what whoever um, is actually the, the new group leader, I think, has got a very interesting like few months to and probably not any longer than that to really make a difference and show particularly on who they decide to put in their team who's like the whip and the deputy and the front bench and you know who the kind of you know the, the the team what the team looks like after that it's not one position this is quite a significant opportunity mm-hmm. to really address any of the issues that clearly are there or there wouldn't be um there wouldn't be a a shuffling of deck chairs, as it were. Um, so yeah, that's that's all very very interesting. Also, over the weekend, the Commonweal book launched, um, sorted a handbook for a better Scotland, and that was like the kind of antithesis of that. It was very good atmosphere. It was very constructive. You know, you kind of felt so buoyed by just the kind of inspiration in the kind of kind of collegiate. You know, in you know, kind of respectful, that sounds a bit kind of twee, but it really was a genuinely, OK, this seems possible um, approach. The people were there, quite a disparate group of folks from all across Scotland, lots of different areas of expertise and interest coming together on common purpose. And I thought, you know what, this is Scotland. This is what we need to do at scale of be able to get people who are not, you know, from the same background, but we can, you know, really learn from each other and build something that's that's pretty special. So, we can talk maybe a wee bit about that later. But um, yeah, that that was that was my weekend. I'm still kind of, I'm still kind of bit buzzing about it because it was just such a good atmosphere. I think, I think something that it's almost like, um, you know, the SNP is the worst possible time for them to be going through a leadership challenge in Westminster because obviously the First Minister has just intonated that a plebiscite election is the is the next big thing. So this is the time when they really should be showing we are in control and we have a plan and the plan is, and it, you know, for a single issue election you still need to appear very competent when you go into it. And I think one of the big things yep. that struck me is... They don't really want this leadership challenge. They need it like a hole in the head, really. But at the same time, if you're going to have a plebiscite election, you're going to need someone a bit more adventurous than Ian Blackford, who 
is someone who's yeah. been playing the Westminster game now for tons of years. They've never yeah. achieved anything. He has no answers. Um, there's a lot of debate just now on whether or not, you know, the plebiscite should be a Holyrood election or a um, Westminster election. The, the, if you yeah. allow me a minute, there, there's two schools of thought you can kind of go into, and I'm very sorry to everybody mm -hmm. who's listening along because it's a bit technical and geeky, but um, a Holyrood election, despite the fact they could probably call one and dare the other parties to vote against the First Minister, while they could force the plebiscite election in Holyrood, mm -hmm. I don't think the result of a, a Holyrood election would hold much weight because we've already established that, that that Holyrood is, you know, a subsidiary to the UK Parliament. It, it derives its power from the Scotland Act. So a Holyrood plebiscite, I don't know if that's going to cross any sort of threshold. Like democratically, it means not much more than, you know, passing a bill in the Scottish Parliament, which isn't enough to pass a referendum. So you then move on to. The Westminster, which is the real, you know, it's the democratic world leader and everything that should be recognised, and the mother of all parliaments and all the, all the guff that they've been feeding us for years. So you come into that's the only one you can kind of do it. Is it Ian Blackford, the, the man who's going to lead that? Probably not. Then you've got to roll into, you know, who is Stephen Flynn? Stephen Flynn's a character that we've. You know, we don't know much about um, Alison Thielis. I know a little bit more about Alison Thielis. I think she's probably a bit more, you know, known. But again, is she is she somebody of Westminster parliamentary leadership standard? Is she somebody who that you know the international community is going to say this person has been speaking about this for you know a very long time and commands the support? And then it's like you say, once you realise the SNP is out ideas, and when you realise the SNP is not putting forward too many ideas, it doesn't take long to look into the field. And you're right, the Commonweal, um, I know which you're a director of, um, comes out with this great big book. And I mean, it is a great big book. It's, I'm sure you'll correct me at some point, but there will be, there, there's pages and pages and pages within that, and tons of different topics from tons of different experts. And it makes you wonder. How have the Commonweal got it sorted when the SNP are about to have some sort of introspective moment to themselves? Well, that's a very good question. And it's not, it, to be honest, I think everybody would have hoped this came from government. But, you know, pulling together experts to really scrutinise problems that are causing the barriers and, you know, the key things we need to connect with people to make independence relevant to their lives. Why hasn't that been done by the government? So, you know, Commonweal have kind of done this because nobody else has. Um, it's not because mm -hmm. there's any elbows out or anything. It's literally out of sheer blinking frustration that, you know, a job needs done, you know. Yeah, it's a bit like you say, like, you know, if you, if you want something done, ask a busy woman. It's like, you know, if you want, you know, policy written, you know, ask ask the, you know, kind of the left wing think tank who are like, you know, funded by small donors, you know, like to keep themselves. Yeah. They have no government money, no advertising or anything. But it shows you what can be done when the will to do it is actually there. And there's, you know, the egos are, are at the door. This is about getting the job done. It's not about any individual. That's what really came across to me in a big way yesterday. Uh, and that's the bit that really makes your kind of heart sore, if you like, it's a bit kind of cheesy, but it really was. It, it was quite emotional I mean, yesterday. It's like the team, yeah, the, the, the team were all on stage. Yeah. It, but it was so evident that it was a team effort. 
Yeah, yeah. absolutely. You, yeah, I'm Andrew you, here. Did you read her article today? She was in the. She was I, in the. I, did. I was going to call it the Sunday Herald, but we don't have a Sunday Herald anymore. We have the Herald <laughs> on Sunday. No. Um, yeah. I did. I thought it was, was it was excellent, and it was yeah, it was good image as well. Yeah, but you know, not challenging is where we're we're failing at the moment. We have to challenge thought, and I think Amanda put it very well. And you know, I, I say all the time. It's our critical friends that save us, not the sycophants. The sycophants will just, you know, see you fail. They won't stop you. They'll just tell you everything you're doing is right. And that doesn't help anybody. Um, and it's something that, you know, I've been helping my kids with schoolwork and stuff just now, like, you know, exams and things coming up. And, you know, what I try and instill in them is that failure is an opportunity to learn. Mistakes are something that are invaluable for our learning journey. And it's it's like in politics, you know, certainly having worked in like, you know, in a corporate environment as, as you have, Graham, you know, if things go wrong, you know, that's that's a really quick place to make a difference to change. Particularly if you go wrong, if you make the mistake, then it's in your power to fix it. So that's actually the easy things to fix. But in politics, there seems to be, you know, an absolute aversion to admitting mistakes. It's like a lot of effort goes into hiding mistakes. A lot of effort goes into, you know, attacking people who try and fix things because they don't want it to get public. And, you know, the whole thing for me is what is causing the total logjam in progress. And, you know, you and I talk about it all the time. If you want to do politics differently, you actually have to do it differently. You have to look at transparency. And that's definitely what Viva Cost is all about. You know, you'll, I know you'll come on to say some of the things that we've been doing on uh, our blog site to try and, you know, because it's a learning experience for us. We genuinely want to see what works. Let's try things. What works? What doesn't work? You know, where can we make gains the next time? Where can we learn? Where can we avoid pitfalls? And I think if we put that approach to politics, and you know, Commonweal over ten years have learned so much. You know, the the team that they've got now. I was at the board meeting a few months back. Um, you know, and there was a lot of talk about this is a really good team. This is the team that seems to be really gelling, the board seems to be working really well together and like supporting the team um, and it's a really kind of, it's a quite a diverse team and uh, you know, you have to have that, you know, a, a diverse kind of um, ecosystem is a healthy ecosystem and I know that because I've just been helping my son study for Nat 5 biology but you know, it's true, you know, you have to have different voices and that again is what Viva Cost is all about, you know you have to have a diverse range of, of views and opinions and you have to listen to them constructively so you actually have got healthy debate, otherwise you're literally just talking to yourself On that, we have invited um, we've now invited Alison Felis and Stephen Flynn onto the podcast. We have. Um, so we've invited them yeah. to see. Now, the odd thing is, neither us are, you know, neither of us are no longer SNP members. We are definitely on the outside. Yeah. We don't get a vote. In fact, the SNP members don't get a vote. This is one of the, it's a very internal election to the SNP. Yep. But an yeah. I think the reason we have to invite them on and the reason that I hope they accept is because I think people need to get to know who they are and why it matters. Why are these people even yeah. interesting to us? You know, yeah. what are they going to bring? 
Exactly. Well, mm. the, the majority of MPs in Westminster are SNP MPs. So, you know, they all have constituents who they represent. And this is the role of the, the person that will lead that group. You know, so for me, a leader of that group should be somebody who represents the group and, you know, represents your views, not decides. And I think some of the stuff that's been coming out from Ian Blackbird has actually been quite eye-opening. A lot of it's been very much, this is what I think. So this is what I think the role is. And it's like, mm, it's the old no-iron no team. You know, your role as a leader is always to make sure your team can succeed. And you can only do that if you listen to them. And you can only do that if you um, have got a representation of those views. Um, and I think this is for the challenge for, for whoever replaces Ian Blackford is to make sure that they fulfil the role for the team. Um, you know, the team are not working for them, they're working for the team. And that's something, again, just from a kind of business and, you know, like just teamwork thing. Like I used to do a lot of like teaching, like how to do teams and stuff. So, you know, and, and I think there's this kind of false sense of hierarchy rather than responsibility. Team leader has got responsibility. That's a point. That's a good point. Have we got, have we got a spec? Have we got a job spec for the? You know, like Westminster leader is something you become, but there's not necessarily a, mm -hmm. a written down. Maybe we should do that. Maybe Viva Kosh should publish Maybe we should. in the week coming. You know, a specification yeah. Yeah. for what the Westminster leader should be, like uh -huh. what their job is and what we should measure yeah. them against. That's a point. That's, that, a, that's really a really good point, point. and it's something that's come up. Um, yeah, well, my, my daughter is doing modern studies kind of block just now at school, so she's been doing a lot of stuff for democracy, and do you know, she's asking questions like that. So how do you become an MP? What, what, what do you need to be to be an MP? And I was like, that's a really good question. There's not a, you know, like a job spec for an MP either, or, you know, an MSP or, or a councillor. And, you know, very much, you know, if, if you're employing somebody, you think about what skills they need, what kind of, you know, what kind of person am I looking for, what experience or whatever, you know, what, what are the kind of key attributes that will differentiate one candidate from the next, etc. But the electorate don't get that, even though, you know, um, there's such a big, you know, again, responsibility to represent people. You know, you literally just get names pretty much and, and a ballot paper to stick across in. And it's funny because I was I actually edited, uh, proofread and edited the democracy section of the sorted uh, handbook for Better Scotland book for Cromwell, um, which was kind of briefly talking about um, yesterday at the launch. And obviously, democracy section is what underpins everything else because it's all—it's the enablers, you know, like to have the system of power, you know, how how power is shared through a society. Um, so it's, it's really, really relevant. But when we're looking at that um, specifically, it's it's really important to understand, you know, how this actually how it works and who understands how it works. Because if you can't access it, if you don't actually have the kind of political education or you don't know the rules of the game, how do we expect the electorate to engage in it? You know, if we really want people to engage in their own democracy, in their own society, and be a part of a change rather than a consumer of it, then we have to... The, the hard yards have to be done by politics. Politics have to make it easy. And I certainly get the feeling in my experience in politics that it's deliberately um, obscure. 
um, and I've just a huge amount of examples, particularly when we had a Tory MP here in Stirling, and I used to regularly like, message him when he was talking about the bins and whatever, slagging off the SNP council administration about the bins or the MSP about transport or something. Um, and I'd say, you do realise your job's for reserve matters, and I would list them out for him and say, so what's happening with this and another, till he eventually blocked me. Um, which is also, again, an interesting side of democracy. But, you know, it's it's incumbent on, you know, people in power to to make sure people know how to measure them. And the idea of a scorecard to say, if you're seeking re-election, did you do, you know, exactly what you said there? Um, You know, how do we know you've succeeded? You know, if you failed, why have you failed and what have you learned? And it's something that just... People don't like to get their homework marked so um but yeah should, really maybe we point. should just demand, demand more they just yeah i think I, I think we've hit on something there that possibly that that's gonna be a fun activity for us is coming up with a job spec so if you're yeah. listening along to the podcast yeah. or you're watching along just now please let us know your thoughts as well because we should come up with something fun we can make a nice little image or pdf we could make them and if we yeah. can get them on the podcast we will we will compare them to the specification that's going along now yeah the other thing about this job, the other thing about this job is this job is one that has international media on it it has a huge performance against mm-hmm. the prime minister and it has yep. a very complicated relationship with the first minister and that's where I think we've seen the suggestion mm. so far that, you know, Alison Thielis is possibly the, the, the first minister's horse in the race. And that mm. Steve Flynn is possibly, you know, the, the backbenchers, the, the the rebels' choice down in Westminster. Now, I, I don't, Steve Flynn's never come across my radar as, like, particularly boisterously against the group. So, have you got any insight there, Alison? Have you ever heard of him being kind of this renegade leader in disguise? I think it's definitely been bubbling under for quite a while. You know, it's kind of come up and then he kind of um, retracted and which kind of, just from observations of the way things work, would suggest somebody, to, to, to coin a, a Glasgow phrase, somebody had a wee word with them, you know, like, so he had, had, a, had a wee uh, conversation with someone. So obviously, the, I don't... Yeah, so so the, what's more interesting, I think, is why Ian Blackford then decided, OK, no. Um, and again, if you look at just politics in general, just take it outside the SNP, I know certainly in 2015, a lot of the kind of Labour bigwig kind of incumbents read the room and stood down, you know, mm-hmm. and I think it was like you stand down before you lose. Um, so that's about writing your own kind of departure. So, you know, if, if you think you're you're on the way out, you want it to be in a controlled way. So I think clearly something happened to indicate that um, that Ian Blackford would not have the numbers. And I think there was kind of rumours of a kind of anybody but Blackford. So how key Stephen Flynn is in it, or um, he has just been the person, you know, that's holding the ball kind of thing. Um, mm-hmm. I thought it was really interesting. I don't think Alison Phillips has ever had, you know, any, expressed any interest. Um, and had Ian Blackford not stood down, I can't see her challenging him. So that would suggest that she is um, doing this to try and, you know, re-establish that kind of same status quo as as way the group runs. But if mm-hmm. if that is the case, I would suggest it's probably going to be quite short lived because clearly there's there's enough. Um, rumblings and uh, desire for change, like real change there, um, to be, 
you know, to, to, to bring this to a head in the first place. So, again, I would you know, humbly suggest the SNP read the room amongst their members and say, when a group of people want change, it's probably best to listen to why, because otherwise you're just trying to, you know, replace, you know, like for like, but without fixing the problem. So, again, if you don't actually, one, admit you've got a problem, and two, try and understand what the problem is, then your solutions are liable to either make no difference or even make it worse. So I really mm -hmm. can humbly suggest you read the room. You know, I uh, only know Alison Thulis really vaguely from being on the NEC. There was a few things that made me kind of like, what? Kind of eye-watering things that were said, which I thought was really odd. Um, Stephen Flynn, I've never... Um, Never spoken to him. I've kind of obviously, obviously since he's put his hat in the ring, I've done a little bit of research uh, into him. And I think um, Mandy Rhodes had put something up from Hollywood Magazine for all the kind of new um, intake yeah. from 2019, which was obviously a couple of years ago, to be fair. And it's probably it was quite a light interview, so I don't think it really tells us who who he is. Yeah, but I mean, he's clearly got got some support there. It looks as if um, you know Alan Smith, who's my MP, and uh, Joanna Terry Casey are are both you know from what I've read um, putting uh, their support behind them. So now you know that, that's interesting <laughs> because Joanna yeah. would be considered by the general sort of populace of the the, the yeah. more popular. The, the Nicola Sturgeon elements of the SNP to be yeah. a so, bit more of a maverick. So, well, but then, I think. What, oh, sorry, can you? No, I was just I was just going to say I didn't think that I didn't think I would see Alan Smith and Joanna Cherry agree about the same choice. It must be said. So I think that says less, to be honest, about Stephen Flynn and more for the need for change. So clearly, there's you know. Two MPs that, you know, as you say, you wouldn't put together in a, you know, that they're, you know, on the same kind of like kind of thought process here. Um, but they're both, they both want change, clearly, because, um, you know, I think that there's, there's maybe different reasons, but there is a need for change. And I think that's what the SNP would be wise to focus on, that, you know, if you go for what you think is a, is a safe, you know, swap in, swap out candidate, then... The, it's, the conversation is not over. It's a bit like you know Scotland in 2014. You know the referendum result was a referendum result, but the conversation's not been over since because you know it's clearly not concluded. Other things have happened, which has exacerbated it, like Brexit and stuff. So I, I think when the when the underlying problems there, if you don't get to the root cause and resolve that, then it's just going to fester. To be honest, and potentially. Um, yeah. potentially hit you at a worse, an even worse time because you know, your original point about timing is absolutely spot on. They shouldn't be having to deal with this now, but they are because they haven't dealt with it before. And this is not new. This has been going on for a good good while. I mean, the, the Patrick Grady thing was quite a long time ago. And, uh, you know, and that was when it hit the media. I mean, a lot of people have known about this for a long time before then, that there was stuff rumbling on. Um, so I think this shows you that if you don't deal with things proactively, you are forced to do, deal with them reactively, and it will probably be a time that's not optimal for you to do it. Um, so proactive um, resolutions are always safer and cheaper and less risky. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I worked there... I worked there in 2015 into 2016, um, mm -hmm. and I'd done, I don't know, I'd done 12, 18 months, something like that, and I worked for the Westminster Group, well, I worked for Douglas Chapman MP, and I kind of, yeah. 
ad hoc in, in some of the Westminster stuff. And it was, it was very clear back then that, you know, at that point it was Angus Robertson. It wasn't Ian Blackford at that time. Um, however, they're very drop-in replacements for each other, like Angus Robertson and Ian Blackford. There's barely, you know, there's there's barely a little paper between them. There's, there really isn't. Um, and what was very clear to me, and I was just a staffer, is that there were there were effectively three groups within the within the body of the Westminster SNP group. And the first group were the front benchers and they took themselves very, very seriously and they vigorously prepared and took up a lot of researchers' time and took up an awful lot of press time and everything to press home the opposition to every piece of legislation that was coming forward, which, you know, in hindsight, it, it felt like the right thing to do at the time, but I mean, it was really like, I don't know, it was like a child paddling on water furiously, it continually splashed and made a lot of noise. I'm not entirely sure we ever got any output from that that made any difference. The second group were the sort of disaffected backbenchers who who were not in the were not in the tent, and certainly, you know, there was very limited resource for them to get in at the central researchers, and there was very limited resource for them to get into the central press. So, they kind of had to do things that generated their own press and generated this, and it was all about relevancy for their own re-elections. Again, when you're in that mindset of I've got to remain elected and I'm not in the intent. They already feel, you know, they're outside the, the main tent, so they're already, you know, they've got to play up to their mm -hmm. constituents that it's still important, um, and they need to get their own press, they need to go and do their own thing. And then there was a kind of third set, and that was Alex Salmond at the time, him, Tasmina, and that sort of, you know, and they, they were certainly, Alex Salmond was an experienced politician who kind of, I, I think he knew that they were treading an awful lot of water and were furiously kind of... Mm. He, he had just obviously stepped down as first minister and party leader, so mm -hmm. I think he was keen that everybody else kind of let the, the, the talent bubble up. Um, yeah. Well, he kind of stood at the the back as kind of, I don't know, the grandfather of the group, kind of giving some advice and helping people along, but ultimately letting them make their own mistakes and go like that. I think that's changed now. I think the group dynamic from what yeah. I hear from people that talk to and people that I know and from obviously what you read online is that you have the sort of front bench you're still paddling away furiously and you know I, I think a blog saying Ian Blackford gets up every single week and he's furious and outraged and I mean the man has so much outrage that it's borderline unbelievable because it's it's all full outrage I mean he is upset by it but he knows he's not going to affect it he just has to put it on for the camera the new second group are the sort of disaffected backbenchers that have brought around his removal because they, they're thinking, well, I've got to turn up and we've got three-line whips and we've got to... You know, there's no point in a three-line whip because the truth is, as long as the Tories have a three-line whip and the Labour Party never really disagree with them these days, that, that it's going to pass. The yep. legislation always passes. All, the, all these big bad bills keep happening to pass. Whether the SNP turn up or don't turn up, they're just wasting their time travelling there. And then you've got the third group. And this is the group that I'm most annoyed about, and I think this is the group that we see are all going for one candidate rather than the Stephen Flynn character. They're they're kind of for the more let's keep it how it is, and they're the comfy people, the people who seem to genuinely enjoy Westminster, enjoy you know, 
taking part in it. I don't believe they're against Scottish independence. I believe they're probably for it, but they're very slowly for it. They're very drag me there, and if it happens, it happens. But until then, I'm very comfy. And you know, you know who I'm on about. The Pete Wishers, the Stuart McDonalds, the David Lindens, they all seem incredibly happy to be in Westminster. And I mean, I blogged about this as well. David Linden sent out a he wrote to the Boundary Commission about the boundary. Oh, yeah. And, I mean, it, it's so farcical because it's an online form that literally everyone can fill out. You just choose who you are, like constituent or member of parliament. What is he sending a written document for in 2022? We're in the Royal Mail's on strike anyway. Yeah. So it's not, mm -hmm. there's no good success in that letter arriving. But again, it's just... I'm in Westminster, look at me furiously writing my letters, my ivory paper, how important I am. I mean, it's all nonsense. It is just a great big show to feign importance. And, it is. You know, is. do you think that's going to change? Do you think we're suddenly going to get a re-energisation and we're going to see the SNP of 2015 that went in there to paint the benches tartan and storm out and storm in and, you know? No. And I tell you what, I mean, again, we've talked about this before, you know, to be an agent of real change, catalyst, you can't be in power as well. It's such a double-edged sword when you're trying to kind of, you know, you've got this kind of perception, you've got to keep things steady. I think they've utterly lost focus on what they're there for. Um, and, you know, that's where they kind of, unless you've got something else that's driving you, something that you're really passionate about, and you tend to get, as you'll know yourself, you know, you know, things that you decide, I'm going to do this and I'm going to put energy and effort into to this and I'm going to do it really well. Um, and that becomes your focus. And, you know, if you're a good constituency MP, you know, that will include representing your constituents well. And then you've got other ones that, you know, which, you know, you, you kind of typically kind of call the kind of careerists. And that tends to be mm -hmm. people that this is the epitome of their success in their career life. You know, they would never be in a position like this Um anywhere like outside of, of you know being the one that gets across in the box and there are elections that you could literally put a, a wheelie bin with a SNP rosette on in the same way you could have done that with Labour for many many years in Scotland so you're really not voting for your sparkling personality your intellect or credibility where you really see it is when people get reselected um, and they got a massive upsurge in the majority particularly when they do it against trends so the national trend we are in a really interesting seat in sterling sterling was 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 very tory with michael scythe who lives up up the road and uh, for years and then we had um labor for years and then we had um the snp which was on the 2015 national swing and then we had a national downswing, which the Tories then won. And more recently, in 2019, we had an SNP swing. So Stirling's a very swing seat. It's not got a particular party loyalty. But, you know, getting re-elected here is harder than getting elected. So um, certainly now, you know, after the kind of Tory Labour thing, it's been SNP. Um, it's gone from Labour to SNP to Tory back to, to SNP. So... That begs the question with the plebiscite election that we were, you know, we can kind of start this conversation off on. We need the SNP absolutely, if they are going to put all on red, as it were, with a Westminster election, mm -hmm. they really are, they're playing a game they don't hold the cards of. They don't hold the cards of when it happens. They don't hold the cards of the franchise. It's a UK franchise, which doesn't really mm -hmm. represent Scotland. The Scotland electoral franchise is very different. Um, they've also got a system that works on seats. Now, 
you could say, if you try and say, you know, which is their position, if we get a majority of seats, that signifies, uh, you know, a, a, an independence negotiation. It begs the question, well, why haven't you done it now? You've already got a majority of seats. You've had a majority of seats since 2015. So why did you not trigger that in 2015? Is this is a majority? That, that's what I never understood. When that happened, that was like you know a real um, a real ground shaking you know political change. The unionists were shaken, and the SNP just went, "Oh look at us, we're in power." And it's like, well, wait a minute, we didn't vote you for you for your sparkling personalities. I say, you know, you were there for you were given power for independence, and really nothing happened. And that is the thing that I think when you look back in this with a kind of historical view, people will say, but why didn't they do something then? And I think that is the question. And you, know, and you can't go back, but you can learn and say, if you get events, yeah, if you get events, you have to see that as a catalyst and do something. If you don't ride the wave when it's in front of you, you can't guarantee one will happen again. So since then, obviously, there's been Brexit, another big political catalyst, and there was a lot of kind of you know hot air about it, but again, the SNP absorbed that into an SNP party political strategy for power. And I know that sounds really cynical, but I mean, I I was genuinely, and I know a lot of other people, um, you know, that I know who are involved or, or very interested in politics, particularly SNP supporters, were really taken aback by the the bus of stop Brexit, and it's like, hang on. You know, and our MP, who I actually campaigned for um, at the time, you know, we were knocking doors. We did a lot of work. I mean, huge amount of work. We were testing some, I'm saying we, not, you know, just me and some friends in our areas were testing this kind of micro-campaign strategy to get a lot of kind of good data because really the SNP weren't particularly interested um, in either growing out their, their vote or, or deepening their vote to make it more secure. It was a very much knock the door Get your get out the vote cards. You know, make sure your vote. You know, I've I've written about that in Vive, the whole thing about how to talk to the electorate. Um, how, oh, I can't remember what it's called now. Is it the what the broccoli one, as we call it, about how to get people out and how election campaigns want what what the electorate actually looking for. Um, so that was um, kind of one of the early ones. Again, born out of frustration that there's very eager activists, and you take them to communities, and then you really squander the opportunity. I mean. I, I've got a friend who just said the best line, I just love it, that some of the canvases that they've been on with some, um, you know, party members, particularly kind of set of party members, it's like yodel drivers. They knock the door and run away before they answer it and literally get to the bottom of the drive and get their selfie. And, you know, the kind of like people who are genuinely interested in what people are saying. I think I might be, actually. Um, so, you know, and it is... It, <laughs> it's interesting though because I used to canvass with Bruce Crawford up here who was our MSP who's I have to say a, you know, a fantastic MSP and I know people you know locally like folk who are not not independent supporters not SNP folk or whatever who really respect Bruce you know even though he was not in their party didn't, they didn't share you know the view on the constitution but he was a very respected local MSP and the reason they was it was really crystallised when you went for a canvas with them. It was like a mobile surgery. You'd knock a door and they'd try, like, you know, try all doors. If there's a couple of doors, we'll try them both. You know, 
last resort was to put a card through saying we've called and there was a number, you know, to kind of get back in touch because he genuinely wanted to connect and he knew the areas really well. People knew him. Um, he did local surgeries. Um, he came to the people rather than expecting the people to come to him. Um, and, and we've lost a lot of that in politics now. There's a big entitlement in politics. But Bruce would really, you, sometimes you would be at a door for 50 minutes because he was like taking down every problem and then following up and making sure everybody had notes and whatever and, you know, made sure they had got to the bottom of it. Yeah. Now, that might seem like, oh, my God, this is taking 15 minutes out of a canvas we'd only scheduled two hours for. But do you know what? That vote becomes a sticky vote. You follow up, you've shown integrity, you've shown credibility and integrity. Hmm? Did Bruce live in the constituency? Sorry, say again? Did Bruce live no, in the constituency? No, uh, Bruce, no, he didn't live in... He lived in Kinross, I think. Um, so... But he, he really knew the area very, very well because he was here a lot. I mean, you know, he was knocking doors, you know, for you know, and he did it for other people as well. It wasn't just for for himself. So mm. it, it kind of comes back to the kind of the view of public servants against like self-serving politicians um, and the transactional nature of politics that you knock people's doors when you want them to do something for you, like put a cross in your box, as it were, rather than what you can actually do for them and a genuine interest in what you can do for them. And I think certainly working a lot in community, um, kind of activism and community, you know, activities, that's what you see time and time again. People are just scunnered with a kind of lack of trust that people, you know, people who they should be able to rely on just let them down a lot. You know, it's like we were on our own out here during COVID. You know, we got huge support from some individuals in the council, but the elected members were absolutely nowhere. And people remember that. And, you know, I think they need to remember that we remember and trust works both ways. So, Alison, we, we obviously have one more thing we need to talk about today, which is that the Commonweal, as we spoke about earlier on the podcast, have brought out Sorted, which is the handbook for uh, New Scotland. And Amanda Bergauer was in the the Herald on Sunday today, yep. and I liked the picture that was her facing off against Nicola Sturgeon, ideas versus no ideas, as it were. Can you, you were, you were at the event, you were speaking at the event, can you tell us a little bit more? Yeah, absolutely. And in true Blue Peter style, you know, since we're ending on a positive <laughs> high, Ta-da! Here it is, sorted, and it is like a Here substantial. Is there it is sorted. We have it sorted. Very new um, exactly. So yeah. So yesterday was the the kind of official book launch. Um, a lot of the people who amazingly contributed to the crowdfunder to make this happen were there and could actually collect their books. Um, my daughter and I were actually on the the bookstall desk, and it was just. It was a great atmosphere. It was just lovely to to chat to everybody. So, I mean, there's there's the book itself, and people who have been involved in the book. Like I was one of the um, one of the editor team, um, so we were like proofreading and making suggestions and stuff. It, it was a it was a massive team effort, and that really came across. And I think that really crystallised yesterday. And you know, when I was asked to do um, a, a bit at the launch, a talk at the launch, I was thinking. What am I going to say? You know, obviously people can read the book for themselves. And Robin McAlpine was um, the kind of like key key speaker who um, took everybody through it and really inspired and you know it fired people up. Everybody I spoke to felt really energised by it, um, which was great. So when I was doing my bit, I, I really just kind of focused on 
what this kind of book not just says about Scotland, um, and it's you know a blue a, a blueprint, a handbook for a better Scotland, as it says, but. You know, and it's really looking at what, what can we do better? And also there's a lot of, like, what can we do better and what can we do now as well? So this is really what an independent Scotland looks like or could look like in the next, you know, its first 10 years, which I think is a really clever way of looking at it. But having been part of the the journey of this book, you know, what I was looking at is that this book, actually the journey is kind of blueprint to the way we do things or the way we can do things to get a different outcome and it was this kind of collaboration and the kind of you know not been stopped by barriers and there was barriers there was a huge amount of barriers I mean it's a huge endeavour to do this and you know when, when looking at democracy section all about how power is shared and what those structures look like and questioning things that we we know and take for that's the way it was always thus you know if you don't actually focus back on what's the purpose of these things like a parliament, like councils, assemblies, forums, you know, you know, mutuals. What what is the purpose of these and are we achieving it? And if we're not, why not? And how can we? And I think all these things came together in the creation of this book, which I just think is just it's very circular, if you know what I mean, very kind of circular economy. What we are trying to show and how to do a better Scotland is kinda of how we did this book. So, you know, we got funding from the Scottish Independence Foundation. And I know Ian Black Ian Black Ian uh, Grant even has been on the or you've of course a blog uh, this week. He was one of the kind of NDX um, speakers, so that you know he's part of the kind of retrospective view. And again, that in itself, us looking at a retrospective is this continual learning idea, and that is very, very important in the book. Certainly, in, in my role as a proofreader and, and editor, um, with the team that was, it was a fabulous team that, that were doing that. It was very collaborative. Um, and very positive, very constructive, and it was taken in a very constructive way. You know, we talked before about mistakes. These things were absolutely taken in the spirit as intended. Everybody wanted this to be a success, and nobody questioned that everybody wanted this to be a success. So there was none of the kind of that, why are you saying that? It was all very yeah. forward motion, which allowed this to be done very quickly. So from the initial seed funding, which is what SIF was really about, about how do we seed things to let them grow? And that this grew, and we took it to because of print costs, and it started off. I think Robin said yesterday the intention was like 150 pages. It's nearly 300 pages, so that's expanded. Mm -hmm. The illustrations are incredible. I mean, it's so beautiful. I mean, the the two lassies who did the illustrations spoke yesterday as well, and I had a kind of wee chat with them, kind of off stage. And the whole, that whole story as well about how this kind of like, you know, group of young illustrators and how they got involved and they were doing work, you know, voluntary work. And it was just all very kind of, you know, meant to be, you know, all, all these yeah. component parts came together to create something really, really special, um, which has been a total, you know, genuinely honour and privilege to be involved in, you know, in, in any small way. And, you know, bringing some people together who I know, like um, Rob and yourself have been kind of like involved as well and Rob doing some of the writing and you, you know, being involved um, and doing some of the kind of reviews and support and what have you. So it's just been a really... Yeah, exactly. But, you know, and I think... Is it the largest? I mean, is it the largest piece of work that's been um, done for independence since the white paper? I think it is. It probably, I mean, I know there's a few other books out just now, um, which I've not actually had an opportunity to read yet, so I couldn't actually, 
and 100% say how long they are. But I mean, this is is a big book, and it's also 300 pages. It's also incredibly easy to access, and that in itself is a skill. You know, that the way it's been done, that you yeah. can dip in, dip out. And again, this was taken from advice from, I think it was Richard Murphy, actually, who was involved in some of it. But he also kind of um, commented on some of the style, because he's very good at doing, you know, like, tweets that read very well. So, I mean, it's very kind of, like, yeah, chunked up. So, I think... Exactly, his threads are excellent. And I think um, Robin very much took on board his feedback um, as to how to make it really accessible. So again, this is part of the kind of ongo- you know, ongoing learning experience. And I think all the work, you know, the cumulative work and expertise and learnings over 10 years of Commonweal have come together in, in something that really feels quite significant. And for me, it's a, you know, after the Supreme Court, we talked about this, you know, that this is the opportunity to be on a new path now for independence. But you need a blueprint as to are we just keep going to go around the same hamster wheel or are we actually going to properly consider where we're at? You know, but where we're at now, you need to be really honest with where you're at, what our assets are and how we use them if we want different outcomes. I've had a a front row seat, oddly, over the last couple of months to see Amanda Bergauer, someone who I didn't know that that well, only, you know two months, three months ago, and I've had a front row seat to see her um, stress level elevate as the book came to yeah. um, nearing the end, because yeah. um, Amanda's you know, quite a perfectionist. She, she is very proud of the work that has gone into this book, and she's very proud of the output. The event yeah. at the Dry Gate looked phenomenal. It had the right tone, the right sombre, yeah. it had the right... Everything just looked spectacular. Like This was a really classy thing, especially... When the last media event that we've all been privy to was Nicola Sturgeon seen almost on the hoof um, when the Supreme Court ruled against her. It was kind of a shoddy party backdrop with a couple of people in the audience that worked for HQ and the rest was all journalists. And then you've got the common wheel setting a different tone. You know, yourself, Amanda Bergauer, Robin McAlpine, you were all up there on the stage, you were given it, you know, you were given a big chat, you, you had this perfectly polished book, possibly, and I'm going to do my homework on this, or I'm going to get you to do the homework on this, I don't know which one of us, but we're going to get a word count, I think, I think sorted, probably word for word, it packs the same punch as the white paper, and secondly, it's probably the most substantive piece of work since the first referendum, I know it's been 10 years mm. of Commonwealth's work, but... You know, mm-hmm. even compiling that is difficult. It's it, you know, you can't just chuck things together and say, "Ha ha," we you know, it has a flow. It has beautiful illustrations, like we're saying. Your mm-hmm. you know, your art attack. Here's one we made earlier. Um, you've got there hiding, and I I, th- I think the big thing from it is, you know, it it starts a debate. It moves it on. This is the new blueprint. This is the new. You know, we had yeah. something in 2014 with the white paper. This is what's next. Sorted is the new white paper, in effect. This is where we start talking. And, you know, yep. the Commonweal, Amanda, Robin, yourself, you all need a massive congratulations because the truth is, you know, we've had the Growth Commission and it chucked out its 11 <laughs> points of nonsense and we've had white papers, but the Scottish Government have not hit the right tone. And I think, do you know what? Well done, you guys. Well, I have to say, I play a very, very tiny, tiny part in that. <laughs> but there's a huge... I mean, Craig DL is a phenomenal um, individual. And, um, you know, like we've got we've got Caitlin, we've got Nicola, we've got Rory, we've got Leo. I mean, and I think that's what 
really was very special yesterday is that that's so it's not an individual there you know we talked earlier about no I and team and all that stuff but it really is it's, it's a cultural thing in Commonwealth it's an ethos it's not it's not you know like it's not convoluted it's not pretense it's genuinely people have different skills and they value each other's skills um, and there's no competitive it's very collaborative it sounds very kind of like you know like happy clappy but it's really not it's just you know all I mean, having been involved in a few communal things like when we did university which was like such good fun but you know there was, there was moments of ah chaos but it all came together and you know and it's very much the whole don't sweat the small stuff. Do you know what I mean? Everybody's there for each other. Nobody's nobody. Everybody shares the pressure. And you're, you're right. You know, you know, there was a lot of pressure to get this right once it was committed, because particularly when you're going in, I know Amanda was particularly keen. I can't ask anybody for money for this until we've got something that we can definitely get out. So, you know, all these things. And, and again, it demonstrates the blueprint of Scotland. It, it's about being brave. It's about being balanced in your bravery to say, we're not throwing jelly at a wall. We're not going to take people's money and just see what happens. We're going to look, balance this risk and say, you know what, we're willing to do the hard work here. And, you know, also admitting when you need a bit of help and the crowdfunder, we were absolutely all blown away. I mean, I know you can kind of were a bit involved in that as well. And, you know, we thought, you know, we'll go for a print. We we're literally just covering costs because it had gone up exponentially up with the print costs to get it out the door, which would have been, you know, such a tragedy for us um, and for the whole conversation and independence had we not actually managed to get this out the door at all. Um, so that first five and a half grand was hit in two weeks. Uh, sorry, two weeks, two days even. And then, you know, we thought, well, if we can get... Yeah, yeah. If we can get if we can get 500, can we print 1,000? You know, and obviously because you've got, you know, economies of scale and the print costs and whatever. And then that was hit within a few days. And I think the crowdfunder closed in St Andrews Day at 14, just over 14 grand, which is amazing because we do completely rely on small donations from individuals who are part of it. I mean, everybody who subscribes to the newsletter, everybody who donates to um, the, the new, the, to, to Commonwealth in any, in any way, you know, it's small or, or large, it's all absolutely appreciated. And, and it has been part of the team. It very much reminds me of my first job at some microsystems, which people used to say it was very campus culture. So it's that kind of thing. And uh, it very, very much reminds me that people used to say there's something you can't quite put your finger on, but it's a sun culture. Um, and it, it was this kind of collaboration. You had authority, but, you know, it was very consensus. Things were done by just consensus, but you were very felt very empowered regardless of where you were in the kind of... Food chains, as it were. So, um, and Conwell for me is like that. That's close I've ever got. And everybody I know who worked for some reason thought they've never had, you know, that experience again in their careers. And this is what I feel with Conwell. And that is how we need to build Scotland. We need to get much better. Hmm? We need to get much better collaboration. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Which well, you know, we're, we. We've put our feelers out. We've asked for we've we've asked the Commonweal if, if some of them or one of them or something would like to pop on and take us through sorted. Yep. But I think that's has now coming up in forty five minutes. So I think we have complete our blogging duties for this week. So Absolutely. blog two while we're still finding our feet. Um the VivaCost um podcast is still brand new. We still haven't got a great name for it, we still haven't got a jingle for it, we still haven't got all those cool things that we're gonna have in the near yep. future. 
The site has some accessibility improvements that we've deployed this week, so I hope everybody has some fun, including finding our tag cloud. I'd like to thank all our new contributors. We've got some fantastic new contributors who you absolutely need to go and read about. Um, yep. Other than that, I'm ready to sign off. Alison, do you have anything else to add, finally? I just want to close in one of my favourite illustrations for the book, which is the chapter that I um, edited, which is Democracy. Just to know if it will come across on the video, but it's just absolutely stunning. And, you know, as an actual piece of artwork, just to get this book, never mind all the phenomenal ideas, and this kind of idea of the images, the words inspired the, the illustrators, the illustrators inspired, you know, the words. And, you know, mm-hmm. I, I do honestly hope everybody gets an opportunity to, to have a look at this book and hopefully it'll inspire you as much as it's inspired the Commonwealth team to keep going. Great. Well, thank you everybody for joining us. Hopefully you can go and get your copy of Sorted, which is available on commonweal.scot. You can you can download it. You can not download it, sorry. You can go on there and you can purchase your copy just now. Um, and hopefully you will do so and we can have a discussion. And I'm hopeful some of the people that are re- listening to this podcast today or reading some of the posts we've got up will think to contribute on their views because Sorted Again is a guidebook, it's a handbook, it's a it's a great conversation starter, it's a diving yes. board and we would like to hear what everybody else thinks. This should be the start of the next Independent Scotland discussion. You've been listening to the Viva Cost podcast, I've been Graham Spence, Alison's been Alison Graham and we will see you again <laughs> and hear you again next time. Goodbye. Bye.